Well, our current series that we've been tracking through in the new year is entitled, Are We There Yet? Getting from here to there. And so for those of you who have not been here, uh, this series is based on the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, and specifically we are considering what it is that we can learn from this biblical account that will help us, not only as individuals, but as a church, to successfully navigate the journey from where we currently are to where God is leading us. And so... Embracing these necessities will not only assist us in successfully arriving at our destination, but will also allow us to benefit significantly in the journey itself. And so our first week, we started with necessity number one, godly discontentment, that change occurs when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Then in week two, we talked about the necessity of committed leadership, that on every level of leadership, we need leaders who are humble, prepared, secure, empowered, and godly, looking at the life and leadership of Moses. Then last week, which was week three, we talked about the necessity of a proper perspective, choosing to see through the eyes of God and his promises rather than human eyes and circumstances. Which leads us to number four of our six-week series with the necessity of unwavering obedience. Unwavering obedience, that genuine relationship with God is rooted in unwavering obedience to Him. I want to start with this media clip this morning. Uh, okay. As I will say, hey, oh! Somebody broke that. Okay. Okay, clearly we need to set some rules. Rule number one, you will not touch anything. Uh-huh, what about the floor? Yes, you may touch the floor. What about the air? Yes, you may touch the air. What about this? Ah! Where did you get that? Found it. Okay, rule number two, you will not bother me while I'm working. Rule number three, you will not cry. Or whine, or laugh, or giggle. So no, no, no annoying sounds, right? Does this count as annoying? Very. Whenever we bring others into our space, when we coexist with others, when we connect, there is a need for rules boundaries, expectations to be set in order for the relationship to be functional, beneficial, rewarding, successful. We need guidelines, we need rules, we need boundaries. Well, the same is true with our relationship with God. Obedience to God's boundaries and expectations are critical for a fulfilling relationship with him. And so the goal of this sermon this morning in this series is to demonstrate the importance of obedience to God. Why? Why is it important for us to understand the value of obedience to God? Because obedience is critical to going from where we are to where God wants to take us as individuals and as a church. And so let's look at Exodus 32, verses 7 to 8 this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What I want to do this morning is trace the spiritual journey of Israel to this moment. And I want to begin with their Egyptian spirituality. 
Now, earlier in the series, we talked about God's call to Abram, who became Abraham. We're told in Scripture that he was an idol worshiper himself. And God came to him and said, I want you to leave your clan, your tribe, your family, your homeland, and I want you to go to what I am calling a promised land. I have a land for you that I'm going to be your God, your one God, only God, and I'm going to bless you with descendants and that the nation formed from your descendants are not only going to be a blessing to that nation, but is going to overflow and become a blessing to all the nations around them. And so we saw that Abraham, who didn't even have children, set out in obedience at 75 years of age, in case you're wondering if you can help Pastor Kevin on Wednesday nights, with his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot and Lot's family, servants and livestock, in pursuit of this promised land. And so we're told that then Abraham had Isaac, who became the father of Jacob, who had 12 sons, and we looked at these, the account of, of them ending up because Joseph was in Egypt and there was a famine, and they stayed there, we said, anywhere from 215 to 430 years, depending on which scholars and which math you want to accept. Bottom line, a very long time. Their growth intimidated Pharaoh, so they were enslaved. Now, it's important for us to understand that God's pattern for Israel's spirituality had not been established yet beyond the call to Abraham and, and the promise of what would become to not only Abraham, but to their forefathers and the faithful obedience that has taken place to this point of their forefathers. And so for the large group of Hebrews that are living enslaved in Egypt, which we estimate to be somewhere around a million, all they really knew of God had been passed down to them orally from the previous generations. They have no direct communication with him or connection to him themselves at this time. And they certainly don't see this God that they've heard about from generations before doing anything in their current painful scenario. And so this present group have only ever lived in Egypt. They were born in Egypt. They have spent their whole lives in Egypt. Some of them died in the next generation, in the next generation. All they have known is Egypt. And all they have known is a pagan culture that worshipped many gods. In fact, Pharaoh himself was considered a god. He was raw. He was a god. He was worshipped by the people. He, they were surrounded by idols and images of pagan worship. This is all they have ever seen of spirituality other than the promise passed orally down from a, from a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, from generation to generation. That is, of course, until unexpectedly, one day, God revealed himself to Moses on the backside of the desert. And in Exodus 3, 6, we have God introducing himself. When Moses goes over to the bush that is burning but not being consumed, God basically says, I would like to introduce myself to you personally. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the God that you were taught about but never really encountered personally. And in Exodus 3.13, Moses replied to him and said, Okay, okay, so just suppose I hear what you're saying and I'm willing to do what you're asking me to do and I go back to these Hebrews that are in Egypt and I tell them that you want to lead them out and that you want to fulfill this promise to Abraham. They won't know who you are. They don't know you. They're going to ask me your name because all the gods around them have a name. And they don't know your name. They know the names of the Egyptians' gods, but what is your name? And God said, tell them, my name is I Am. I am the God above all gods. 
I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to take them from their current reality to the land promised to Abraham. Even though they were descendants of Abraham, they don't know I am. They don't know him. In fact, they knew the pagan gods more than they knew the God of Abraham. Their Egyptian context was polytheistic. Many gods all around them. Next, you have their wilderness spirituality. The wilderness journey, which we said could have been completed in approximately 40 days, instead took 40 years. And there's a reason, and a good reason for that. The wilderness journey is not just about arriving in this so-called promised land. It's not about changing your address. It's not about changing your reality of going from slavery to freedom. It's not even just about a physical piece of property. The purpose of this journey was to make them the people of God. They're leaving Egypt with no idea who he is, and by the time they inhabit the land, they have to know this God. Is to make them the people of God. And so God's intention was to bring them out of Egypt from Egyptian spirituality to not knowing God beyond oral tradition to having a covenant relationship with God that would not only transform their lives and their families, but the nations all around them. And so when they set out for the land of Canaan, they didn't know God, and they didn't have a relationship with God yet. If you look closely, their journey is not based on obedience to God that flowed from this relationship with God up to this point. That's not what it is. They're responding to the leadership of Moses and the call of God based on the fact they are living in horrific circumstances and conditions. And there's an offer to them of a better life. And they have witnessed the power of God going up against the most powerful Egyptian magicians. And God was victorious. And so they jumped to the winning team. They may be stupid, but they're not stupid. They want to be on the winning team. They want the promise of success. Well, of course, my option being staying here in slavery versus going to freedom, staying here in an environment of weaker power when I could be cared for by someone of greater power, it's a no-brainer. But they weren't committed to God. They're committed to the benefits that God could provide. That's what they want. They want what God can give them. Egyptian life had shaped who they were. In Egypt, God was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was their leader. And even though they knew that Moses was saying that it's the God of Abraham that's leading them, it becomes clear time and time again that they look to Moses as their leader. In fact, most likely seeing them as their God. He is God in the flesh for them like Pharaoh was. So they're happy when he provides what they want and what they need. But then they get angry and critical when he doesn't. And it's a hard life. But the time came when this needed to change. And so he wants, God wants to establish a covenant relationship with these people. A covenant goes two ways. Both parties have to contribute to this. And so God will require obedience to his words and his laws in return for blessing and care and protection and relationship with them becoming his people. So in chapter 24, God feels it's time. And he called Moses aside to the mountain and he said, Moses, this is what, I, this is what covenant relationship with my people is going to look like. Let me tell you about it. Now I want you to go and tell the people. And so Moses went down and he gathered the people and he told them 
Listen, this is what God said. He wants covenant relationship with you, and this is what it's going to look like. This is what's going to be required in terms of obedience. What do you think? People are excited. They're thrilled. God wants relationship with us. This is a great day. And they spoke these words. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. We will do. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And then later in 24 verse 7, they repeat their vow. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And then God said, okay, Moses, I need you to come up to the mountain again. But you're going to stay a little longer because we're going to flesh out the details of what this is going to look like in everyday life and what my expectations are. And I'm going to have to do some writing with my finger on some stones. So I need you to come up here and spend some time with me as we flesh out, if you will, if we write out all the details of what is going to be involved in this covenant relationship. And so we're told took Joshua part of the way, and then he went up and met with God. He stayed for 40 days and nights, and God laid out all the details. And between chapter 24 and chapter 32, you can see and read all the details this afternoon after your nap. The focus of the wilderness spirituality was to make them the people of God based on covenant relationship. Then we get to where we are today. Covenant spirituality. Chapter 32 occurs at a very significant point in the book of Exodus. It's the transitional chapter. It's, it's halftime. It's a break between, if you will. It's the intermission between God wanting to make them a covenant people as they live by these expectations to Moses having an opportunity to implement it amongst the people. You have this little intermission here that happens in 32. The last recorded words, you may want to note, of the people of God prior to chapter 32 was chapter 24, verse 7, when they vowed obedience to God and said, everything the Lord has said, we will do. The next time their speech is recorded, it's found in 32, verse 1, and this is what they're saying. Come, make us gods who will go before us. Hmm. So much for unwavering obedience. Something has happened between chapter 24 and chapter 32. And so the 40 days and nights that Moses spent with God away from the people created a problem for the people. you got to remember, all of their lives, their spirituality has been tied to a visible leader. Pharaoh was God. The people now had substituted Moses for Pharaoh. And they're seeing him as their leader, and he's providing for them. And in many ways, they're seeing Moses as their God. And they said that, because they're saying, well, Moses, you brought us up out of Egypt. You're the one who brought us up. And now he has been visibly missing for 40 days. And they're growing impatient. How long can we go without having our God visibly in the midst of us. And so with Moses gone, their visible God is missing. They need a substitute. They need a new one. Moses needs to be replaced. Moses replaced Pharaoh, and now a calf will replace Moses. So the people went to Aaron. Aaron's second in command. He's the one doing most of the talking in Egypt. He's the front witness to all the miracles of God. I would imagine it's intimidating, you know, when representatives of about a million people come to you, tell you what they want, and there's just one of you. And so he says, you know what? Okay, take off your gold jewelry. Get your daughters and your sons to take off their earrings. Sorry, it's in there. And your wives. Sorry, it's in there. And get them to bring them to me. And they did. And it says, and Aaron took them and he cast them in the shape of a calf. Now, likely there's, a, there's wood covered in gold here and he fashioned it, we're told, with a tool. So God's given us great detail that there's a lot that's going into this. 
And when he finished it, he presented it to the people, and this is what he said, these are your gods that brought you up out of Egypt. What? Like seriously, chapter 24, verse 7. Whatever the God, Lord wants, we will do it. And now Aaron, their leader, is saying, here is the God who brought you up out of Egypt? And suddenly the reality of what he had done hit Aaron. And so he immediately starts building an altar to God. Oh my, what have I done? And he starts building this altar to God in front of the calf. And he said to the people, okay, 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 listen, I gave you your calf, but tomorrow, okay, like you can only do this tonight. Because tomorrow we got to have a festival for the Lord. we, we got to get back to the Lord. We'll do that tomorrow, okay? And so the next day, the people got up early, and they sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord. But then they started eating and drinking, which in itself, not a bad thing. But then, it says, it started leading to indulging in revelry. You know, my dad used to warn us, don't get involved in revelry. I thought, sure, Dad. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I, I won't do it. Well, I finally know what it means. Drunkenness and immorality. I mean, they might be dancing, but there's a good chance they're dancing pretty naked. And they're pretty drunk. And all of a sudden, God interrupts his meeting with Moses and says, uh, Moses, uh, you got a little problem. Let me tell you what's happening. In fact, my people, well, actually, he says, he uses, he's like, okay, you know what? If they want to think you're their God, well, let's play that game. Moses, you know, your people that you brought up out of Egypt? Remember them? Well, they become corrupt. They're rotting. They're decaying. They're stiff-necked. They're unwilling to submit to me in obedience. And so, you know what, Moses? I think I'm going to destroy them. And so as Moses and Joshua approach the camp, they see the calf. They see the dancing. And we're told that Moses comes and he breaks the calf and he, he burns what will burn and he grinds up what's left into powder and he puts it in their water and he made them drink it. And then he turned to Aaron and said, what did these people do to you that caused you to lead them into such a great sin. And Aaron responded with four excuses. Well, Moses, these people are prone to evil. They're prone to evil. In other words, they just can't help themselves, Moses. They're, they're bad to the bone, Moses. They're bad to the bone. It's bigger than them. It's bigger than both of us, Moses. They're prone. Secondly, he said, they said to me, or in other words, well, actually it's their fault, Moses. It was their idea. They brought the idea to me. It wasn't my idea. It was their idea. And then number three, he said, we didn't know what happened to you, Moses. We didn't know. In other words, actually, technically, Moses, it's really your fault because you didn't come back. And the fourth one is my favorite. I threw the gold in the fire and out jumped the calf. In other words, not my fault. And the result of their disobedience is that their relationship, this covenant relationship with God is, is in pieces. It's broken. It's literally, I mean, Moses is so mad, he throws the stones down and they break. And 3,000 of them die by the sword that day as the elders go through the camp. And then God, for good measure, struck down a whole bunch more with a plague. But the point is this. Covenant relationship, covenant spirituality, is rooted in unwavering obedience to God. And they didn't have it. So for us today, if we're going to go from where we currently are to where God is leading us, whether it's as individuals or as a church, it's going to require unwavering obedience to God. 
And so I want to consider three actions that we see reflected in this text that can impact unwavering obedience in our relationship with God. The first, owning it. For most of us here in this place, we share, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room this morning, then we all share a common truth of how we came to faith in Jesus, right? Our common truth is Jesus. We came to Jesus. He saved us. He changed us. But outside of that, without a doubt, our journey of faith varies from person to person. How you came to Jesus and how I came to Jesus was probably a very different road. But we all got to the same place, just a different road. I was born as a third-generation Pentecostal to a mother who was a believer and a father that would come to faith when I was about five years of age. Even though my dad was a, an unbeliever, my father tithed faithfully to the church, he lived a moral life, he respected Sundays, which meant we weren't allowed to do anything, and he sent his family to church. I went to church because I was sent. That's why I went. I was taught what I was supposed to believe. I was taught the consequences of not believing what they told me to believe. I witnessed God impacting people's lives in the church. I saw it as a kid all through my life. I obeyed because, quite frankly, I was scared to death of my parents, and I was afraid of the God that they taught me about that would send me right to hell if I messed it up. So I'm, I'm, I'm staying with this because I can't take that chance. I didn't like going to church or Sunday school. And when given the opportunity to choose for myself at that wonderful age of 16, I chose not to go, except for the occasional times when my mother pulled a guilt trip. My mother was a travel agent for guilt trips. She was good at it. So I would go, because the guilt of staying home was greater than the pain of enduring. Faith for me, what I had been taught was it was about what is okay to do, and what is not okay to do. Who I was allowed to hang out with and who I wasn't allowed to hang out with. Who we couldn't be with, where we could go, where we weren't allowed to go. What you could wear, what you were not allowed to wear. I went to church. I grew up in a church. I knew what the church believed. I knew how to act in church. I knew how to speak in church. There is a whole church language, right? I knew the language. I'm bilingual. I knew how to dress. Some of you may think I lost that somewhere along the way. But I didn't have a faith of my own. I didn't. It was the faith of my parents. It was the faith of my grandparents. It was the faith of my uncles and my aunts. But it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine. But there came a time in my life that I had to own it. That I needed it to be mine. Not because it was my family's or my church's or my friend's, but because it needed to be mine. And so the point I'm making is you can grow up in a so-called Christian home. That's an interesting topic all, all, topic, to, uh, was it? topic all on its own. You can attend your church your whole life. You can witness life-changing miracles in other people. You can participate. You can serve. You can give financially and not know who God is in your life. It is possible. And some of you, you know, like today is junior high, you know, your day to be in here, and so some of you are in grade 6, 7, 8. Some of you are senior highs. You're forced to be here every week now. Grade 9, 10, 11, 12, maybe some young adults. And you hear this old guy up there, right? But let me tell you, it only seems like yesterday that I sat where you're sitting today, enduring the service. And the faith wasn't mine was theirs but the day came when I had to make it mine I 
And you have to make it yours. You have to make it yours. Now, this reality is not you to me. Kids growing up in the church, I've observed adults through the years. This is their story too. You can come to church maybe as a kid and all of a sudden you're an adult at church or maybe you came in later in life through some friends or circumstances. You settle in. You learn how it works. You learn what they believe. You learn how to talk the language. Now you're bilingual. You know how to act like they act. You know how to dress like they dress. Maybe you serve, give. But you say, I really don't know who God is in my life. Adults who grow up in the church can have a faith that's based on family tradition and appearances and fear. I have met adults who are 30 or 40 years old who are scared to death to admit they don't have a relationship with God because they're still afraid of their parents who go to the church. But they know it's not their own. But unwavering obedience to God involves joining a journey with God so He can bring you into relationship with Him so He can form your life, so He can change you from the inside out, so He can stretch you in the process of you becoming a child of God. A child of God. Unwavering obedience begins with owning your faith as your own. Secondly, blending it. To the best of my knowledge, I invented the original party mix. I know, that's a lot for you to take in. To the best of my knowledge, now when I say party mix, I don't mean a song list for a party. I'm talking about like the bag of chips, right, that has the varieties all in one bag. I think I invented that. Because as a kid, I would mix chips and cheesies and pretzels in a bowl. I, I, I enjoyed the various flavors and textures all in the same bowl. But then years later, the chip company stole my idea. And Party Mix was born. You know, and now people are paying for that as a separate item. Well, our family doesn't always eat cereal. But when we do, we often blend. We just do. At our house, it starts with some Special K and a few mini wheats topped by a little bit of granola or maybe some Honey Nut Cheerios and a little of this. We, are, we have now invented the breakfast party mix at our house. It won't be long before the cereal companies steal that from us too because our family loves to blend. We just love to blend. Well, blending is an important yet challenging aspect of unwavering obedience. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, come out from the world and be separate. Okay, okay, I got it. And then Jesus tells us, which I don't think my parents ever read what Jesus said. I think they just stuck with Paul. It's pretty common in evangelical churches even today. Just putting that out there. Paul's words become more important than Jesus, but we won't go there today. Jesus tells us in Mark 16, 15, go into the world and make disciples. So you're sitting there as a kid and you're thinking, well, which is it? Are we to come out or are we to go in? I'm confused. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Because it's both. It's a blend. The goal, you see, is to live in unwavering obedience to Jesus in our personal relationship with him, rejecting the mindset of an ungodly culture, while at the same time participating and interacting in our culture in order to heal a broken humanity and help them become disciples of Jesus. See, the truth be told, followers of Jesus have always struggled to live their lives the way Jesus called us to. Because his call is demanding. His call is sacrificial. His call is selfless. And so response of followers of Jesus, the most common is to create a version of following Jesus. A version of discipleship that we're comfortable with. 
We, we just want to change the elements to make the blend a little more appealing to us. And so to create a more comfortable version, you have to keep enough of what Jesus requires because you've got to satisfy him. Because you don't satisfy him, then, then you're in big trouble. So you've got to have enough of the satisfying Jesus to make sure you make it. While adjusting the rest of our lives to fit what makes us as believers feel comfortable and satisfied over here. And so most followers of Jesus from day one have been trying to create this balance of what works best for me. Now I've heard preachers and followers of Jesus lamenting how serious this problem of compromise and worldliness is in our culture today. Let me tell you something. If you read the writings of church fathers from 1,800 years ago, you'd think they were saying it today. You would. But the truth is, this has been a problem in the church since the beginning. Just look in the New Testament. The gospel spreading outside of Jerusalem. It's spreading outside of Judaism. Gentiles are getting saved. All of a sudden, what happens? This group of people come along and say, listen, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be circumcised. Well, Jesus didn't say that. And all of a sudden, the apostles are huddling in Jerusalem, first council. We've got to solve this problem. And they come to the conclusion, no, you don't have to. Why? Because there are people who weren't comfortable with that, so they created their own. And it had to be dealt with. Well, read most of the second half of the New Testament. Almost every writer without fail will address a problem, a group of people, a person who is taking the truth of what Jesus taught, what has been passed on to the apostles, and shifting it and twisting it and changing it. Why? Because they like that version better. They like that version better. And so they're twisting it to make say, well, yeah, you know what? If I just move this, this, this around, okay, I think I can live with that. And the New Testament writers are calling them out and saying, no, they're false teachers. They're liars. They're deceivers. They're antichrists. Just read it. Then you get to the early church fathers. Someone comes along and says, you know, I have some questions about this Jesus being man and God. And next thing you know, you have the Council of Nicaea and you have the Nicaean Creed. Why? Their responses, and there's so many of them. The early church fathers are fighting people who want to take this core truth and switch it and blend it to a more comfortable arrangement for them. This year was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Now, even though as Pentecostals, our roots aren't in the Protestant Reformation. They're actually in the Anglican Church, Church of England, but that's another story. But the Protestant Reformation, a significant moment in the history of the church. Well, why, why did it happen? Because there was a group of people who believed that the very church was doing that very thing. Taking what was the truth of the word and adjusting it and blending it to appease people and to, for their own advantage and had twisted the heart and essence of scripture. And so there's this group of people who stand up to this powerful giant and say, no, we don't believe this. The revivals of the 18th and 19th century. Calling people back to repentance and change. Because what you've made Christianity, what you've made being a follower of Jesus is not biblical and you need to return to the core of the truth of the scripture. Today, many followers of Jesus still wrestle with the call of Jesus to unwavering obedience, to complete surrender, to total commitment to God in opposition to the pull and the impact and the shaping of culture on our beliefs and on our values and our desires and our priorities. And the result is, we, like many who've gone before us, like to create our own version of being a follower of Jesus that we feel will meet his requirements without costing us too much, without having to give up too much. It's not new. It was in the book of Acts. It's been every generation since. It's not true. It's not true. True that it's, it's recent day. It's been every day. And the truth is this. You can't minimize the call 
to discipleship, which includes sacrifice, commitment, dying to self, taking up your cross, giving your life away so that you can find it to engage in and seek after cultural values and priorities. We just can't do it. We can't tell God one minute like the Israelites, we will obey everything you ask, God. And the next moment say, well, what I want most is what culture is telling me is important. I want that God over there. I want the God of money or prestige or power or accomplishment or satisfying of the lust of my life. We can't do it. 1 John 2.15, I was reading this in my own private time this week. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, and it means the world's mentalities and ways and beliefs, love for the Father is not in them. It's not in them. The offer of Jesus is life and truth, meaning and purpose and salvation and hope and the kingdom of God. But it's based on unwavering obedience, total commitment, sacrifice, dying to self, taking up your cross. To quote our culture, it's not very sexy. We're not lining up saying, sign me up for that. No, we're too busy trying to figure out how to make it softer. Unwavering obedience means that God and God alone is the focus of our worship and the focus of our lives. Thirdly, admitting it. Last week I talked about the choice of either being supportive or being critical. As I reflected on that part of my sermon this week, I, I do sometimes reflect on what I say. I, kinda, I came to this conclusion that perhaps I should have said this at the time. There is a difference between criticism and accountability. There is a difference. And as I reflected on that, this is what I concluded. Criticism seeks to find fault. That's its purpose. To assess the blame to someone. Criticism destroys it's selfish because really it serves to protect individuals and to deflect responsibility to other people. It's motivated often by anger, dissatisfaction, or disappointment. There's usually no learning involved in criticism other than what we learn about the character of the person criticizing. That, that, that's just the truth. But accountability, true accountability on the other hand, seeks to assist with change. It's selfless because it's about something bigger than ourselves and that moment. It's motivated by a desire to actually do good and help other people. Accountability creates where criticism destroys. It brings a positive outcome for the future. There's learning involved in accountability. We receive the words and we accept the words and we reflect on our need to change. And as hard as it is, in the end, we're all better for it. Moses wasn't criticizing Aaron about what happened under his watch. He was holding him accountable. Aaron didn't want to admit his responsibility in the matter and reacted like many of us react when we're held accountable. He justified his actions. He wanted to avoid taking responsibility, and so he made excuses. See, the problem is, when we are clearly wrong, and I, I've been there a couple times, I know that may be hard for you to believe. I have been wrong. Once I thought I was wrong, but I was just mistaken, but sometimes I've been wrong. When we're clearly wrong, when we're being held accountable for our actions, and we're justifying our actions, and we're avoiding responsibility and making excuses and maybe generating sympathy for ourselves so people will understand why we're behaving so poorly, poor me, well, it doesn't help us personally and it doesn't help the situation at hand. The truth is, if we can't admit our wrongdoings, if we can't admit when we make errors, if we can't admit when we make poor choices, if we stop calling them mistakes and own them as poor choices, if we don't do that, we can't correct them. We can't change. We can't become better followers of Jesus. If we are aware of our shortcomings but do nothing, it will ne negatively impact us, but 
By association, it's going to affect other people around us. It's going to affect your family, your friends, your co-workers, your fellow believers. You see, relationship with Jesus requires unwavering obedience, but it starts with repentance. It starts with repentance. Repentance involves admission of wrong, not justifying why we did it. Feeling bad for what occurred. It involves seeking the forgiveness of those we've wronged, whether it's God or others. Repentance involves stopping doing what you're currently doing and start doing something different in the future. That's why the word repentance literally means to start walking a new road. But the truth is this. We are likely not nearly as good at repentance as we need to be. We live in a culture of entitlement. That is very individualistic. And this culture, like any other, affects followers of Jesus. It affects the church. And the result is the church has bought into, in many ways, culture's thinking, and we have very poor repentance practices. And so if we're going to go from where we currently are to where God wants to lead us, there's going to need to be unwavering obedience, which begins with recognizing our need to admit the truth when we're held accountable. Admitting the truth. Saying, yeah, I was wrong. I was wrong. I am wrong. I'm sorry. I'll change. I'll allow God to change me. Starting this moment, it's going to be different. If you're going to live, if you're going to ever go in your life where God wants to take you, if this church is ever going to go where God wants to take us, it's going to require a group of people who understand the art of repentance, of recognizing when we are wrong instead of excusing ourselves. Of admitting when confronted that they might just be right. Admitting it. I'm going to invite our worship team back. Folks, if we're going to get from here to there, from where we are to where God is leading us, it's going to take unwavering obedience. And unwavering obedience begins with owning your faith as your own. Unwavering obedience means that God and God alone is the focus of our worship and the focus of our lives, that we can't create a blend that makes us feel more comfortable. And unwavering obedience begins with recognizing our need to admit the truth when held accountable so we can be, repent and be free as an act of obedience to God. Would you stand with me this morning? I would like to invite our prayer team to make their way to the front this morning. And as our worship team leads us today, you may be here and you need prayer for something specific and, and we're, we're going to minister to you and pray for you. But I'm just going to ask you this morning, would you reflect on your own life? Reflect on your own reality. Be honest with yourself be honest with others and recognize yeah I gotta take some responsibility I gotta do something about this I can't let this continue to be what it is expecting that it's gonna take me where God wants to take me because it isn't you're on the wrong road you're going the wrong way God wants to get you back on the road. Get you on the new road. Taking you from where you are to where He wants to lead you. But are you willing to let Him do that this morning? It's going to involve the hard work, swallowing our pride and admitting our wrong, fixing whatever is our responsibility to fix and asking God to fix what we couldn't even begin to fix. It was interesting. I'll just leave this with you. I had a student at the graduate school who I had taught earlier contact me this week and said, can I come and do an interview for a course? I had to interview a pastor. And so he has a list of questions. 
And one question was, tell me how you do church discipline. And I said, oh, oh, I don't do church discipline. He said, what do you mean you don't do church discipline? I said, well, show me in the Bible where it teaches us how to do church discipline. He said, well, in Matthew. I said, that's not a passage on church discipline. That's a passage on reconciliation. We don't do discipline. We do reconciliation. The whole story of God is about His creation gone out of whack and God putting it back in order. The church exists not to discipline people and put them on the sidelines and punish them. It exists to bring them back to where they should be in God. That's what we do. I don't do discipline. I do reconciliation. I don't want to be a part of a church that thrives on discipline. I want to be a part of a church that lives and dies for reconciliation. Now, there might be some accountability and some consequences, no doubt. Folks, this is all about reconciliation. God's not here to punish us for messing this up. God's here to say, listen, as of today, in this moment, I'm going to serve the Lord. That's it. And I'm just going to move on from all of this to something better. I just pray that that's your desire this morning. Lord, wherever we find ourselves as individuals in our journey with you, we know that the enemy's greatest tool is helping us be so focused on our failures, making us feel like we messed up so bad that we are disqualified from our future, to being so bound by our own disappointment and the disappointment of others that we can't embrace the future that you have for us. But Lord, we stand here today and we declare that what needs to be repented of, we will repent. What we need to own, we will own. How we need to properly blend, we will blend. Because our focus is not on the past. We'll take the good that we've learned through the heartache and the pain and the celebrations, but we're going to apply it to the future. From this moment on, not yesterday, not last week, last month, not 50 years ago or 20 years ago or last year. It is today, in this moment, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do. I repent of what I need to repent of and I do whatever you want me to do. Lord, I thank you that there is so much excitement in the futures that are represented in this room, that if we could just get to the point where we give ourselves to you, the incredible joy and fulfillment and peace and love and happiness we could know. Lord, if we have any energy, would you help us use it in our pursuit of you, not in our crafting of what makes us feel comfortable. Lord, we pray this as we prepare to leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.